Hello, this is Philotheism, and you are listening to Catholic vs. Other. So, tell us, if you would, a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe it. My parents are from Iraq, but I was born in Jordan in 2001, and we moved to Canada in 2002. I was raised in the Assyrian Church of the East. You know, my parents are from the Middle East, so... Most of their debates, like who, who they argue against, have been, you know, Muslims. So that's how I have knowledge of Christianity. Did you ever pray to God as a young person? Mm, not really. You know, at church or something. But never on your own? Not really, no. You were never afraid in bed at night just wondering about this or that and start to reach out to God? <laughs> I mean, that, that just started happening. I mean... <laughs> Okay, so more recently you've started groping with existential angst and these sorts of things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How old are you? 17. Okay. What is the philosophical journey that you're on right at this moment? What lies ahead of you and what lies immediately behind you? What changes have taken place recently and what changes do you foresee in the near future for you in terms of your worldview and your philosophy? Well, for one, I've started to appreciate the ancients more than I did before. I guess that's one thing that changed. And I see them as, you know, kind of misunderstood. And I think their ideas still stand for the most part, you know. Aristotle, obviously. Philo, you know. That's kind of where I am right now. We'll only touch briefly, obviously, an outline of some of these ideas. But before we do that, I just want you to address your moniker, this name that you've taken. Well, Philo, he lived around the time of Jesus. And uh, he kind of has this idea that, you know, the laws of thought, you know, the universals, Non-contradiction, excluded, middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to him, those were rooted in God, the Logos. And that's where John got his ideas from. At least that's what I've been told. So that's kind of what, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm an agnostic, because I, I wouldn't say atheism works with a worldview with, you know, universals or, or at least not materialism or naturalism. Um, at the same time, I'm not sure if, you know, the God of classical theism exists either. So that's why, you know, I, I'd say I'm Philothea. I mean, that's kind of who he was. He, That's as far as he went with God, really. He did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, I guess he did, but he never really tried to prove it. He never gave arguments for it in his work. At least not, I haven't seen this. I, I only started, you know, reading about him pretty recently. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Did he build on... Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle? Uh, I'm sure, yeah. Probably Plato more than the other two. And are you familiar with Plotinus and Neoplatonism? Yeah, I am, yeah. I like Plotinus too. I mean, Plotinus also builds on Plato a lot. Like, Neoplatonic philosophy has been kind of taken by scholastic philosophers. And that kind of philosophy also kind of makes me lean towards classical theism. Because, you know, the whole composition problem, things are composed and something with parts is contingent on its parts, you know. Mm. Have you encountered or read St. Anselm of the 11th century? I haven't read his, his actual work. I know his ontological arguments. My own conversion to God was due in large part to the ontological argument. Mm. Just because I chewed on it like a Zen koan for eight years before I became a monotheist, but it, it helped. It did help. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Aquinas's critique of Anselm is sound. That's kind of why I'm back and forth on it. 
Yeah, I don't say that Anselm's argument is airtight, but it's still worthwhile to chew on it, even though it may not be airtight logically. Yeah. Right. You're familiar with Zeno, right? In, among the ancients? Yes. Yeah. There's a lot to be gained by chewing on genuine contradiction and paradox and apparent contradiction and just sort of grappling with that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of David Bentley Hart? No. He has a book called The Experience of God, and that's kind of what put me where I am right now. It takes you into the whole idea of being, you know, and how all things that are composite are contingent by nature. You know, I kind of just thought contingent as, you know, it can exist or it cannot exist, basically. That was the only idea of contingent I had, but apparently it goes into ontology and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the way it happened for me is that I was an atheist. I was actually a solipsist, a hard solipsist, and that's about as atheist as you can get. And there's that horseshoe effect where if you become atheist enough, you actually become God. That's what happened to me. I was I was the creator and sustainer of everything. And it's not that wild and unusual of a situation. I know Buddhists. There's no difference in my mind between a Buddhist and a solipsist. The Buddhist is just confused about the one mind. They don't think that they are that one mind. But I identified with the god of Buddhism when I was a hard solipsist. There's only one mind. It's my mind, obviously. And the way that I was cured of this solipsism, ironically, was through reading Rene Descartes, who says, I think, therefore I am. And he talks about how to escape from solipsism by a leap of faith. And so uh, I found myself taking that leap of faith because I had Descartes there holding my hand and uh, helping me. <laughs> yeah. My view of God has changed too. I mean, I, I never thought of God as the subsistent act of existence. <laughs> I mean, I never thought of it like that. Can you just characterize for me your understanding of the differences between deism and theism, in particular monotheism? Well, I don't think I am a deist. I mean, a deist is, you know, you kind of believe God is not intervening. The idea of God I have is someone who gives existence to everything. So he's constantly interacting just, you know, by his nature. But I mean, if I were to say I'm a deist, it'd be as in, I believe in God, but I'm not a theist. I mean, I'm not religious. Okay. I'm not sure if I understand. Are you a monotheist, but just not practicing religion? Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Okay. Or, again, I'm, I'm not a monotheist. I'm not sure where I am right now. Like, I'm, I'm agnostic. Why would you resist saying that you are a monotheist, a generic monotheist? Because from my perspective, this is the place to be, right? Monotheism is the place to be. Mm -hmm. So what are the obstacles for you intellectually? It's the response, I mean, that, that I hear from, you know, atheist philosophers to these classical arguments. Like, you know, have you heard of J.H. Sobel? No. He's an atheist philosopher from Canada. And he has a book called Logic and Theism, where he goes through most of the proofs of the existence of God, you know, Kalam, ontological arguments, you know, and Aquinas' arguments. And that's the kind of one I focused. I didn't really care about the other ones. I was kind of just focused on Aquinas. And then there's other atheist philosophers like Graham, Oppie, William Rowe that have replies to these. So, uh, you know, Aquinas' second way talks about sustaining causes or efficient causes. So when I read someone like Copleston, a British Thomist philosopher, uh, he has a debate with Bertrand Russell, which was kind of famous. It was on PSR. He kind of gave the example of a sustaining cause where it was like, we are sustained by oxygen. And so that would be an example of in order of sustaining causes for Aquinas. Like we are sustained by oxygen or, you know, the sun. See, if, if I'm understanding sustaining causes right, there's actually nothing 
that sustains our present existence at this very moment right now. So it seems like anything you can think of doesn't sustain our existence in this very moment. If you were to get rid of oxygen, you wouldn't die right away. Yeah. Are you familiar with Peter Kraft? Peter Kraft, yeah. Have you looked at his presentation of the proofs for the existence of God? Yeah, I've, I've seen some of them. He addresses, uh, Peter Kraft addresses this dual nature of Aquinas's second way, where you've got the chain hanging on a hook. That's one way of looking at it chronologically. But then you've also got that fabric that you're talking about, where it's a hierarchical, logical interconnection mm -hmm. among the causes. Yeah. He acknowledges that there are those two aspects of the argument. I've always just liked the chronological one. I've never really looked at the fabric one, mainly because my little brain can't process that level of complexity, you know? It's just easier to look at a chain hanging on a hook and saying there must be a first cause, which is in and of itself uncaused. So, that, okay, I'll just go with that. Why can't it be material? Why can't the first cause be material? Because that material cause that you want to posit as the first cause, you want to say that it is composed of parts and that it's subject to change, right? Yeah. God is pure actuality. There's no potential in God. I mean, if God is pure actuality and he's completely simple... His nature is necessary. So since he's necessary, his nature is necessary, and he, he's necessarily self-diffusive, I just don't see any room here for free will. I don't know if you read the little quotes I sent you from Thomas Aquinas in reply to your questions, but basically what he's saying is that he made us free. He's not twisting our arm to be free. He's making us free. He's letting us partake of his freedom to a certain extent. Now, do we have unlimited freedom? No, of course not. Only God does. But we partake of his freedom. So when he makes us free, he's not frustrated in his design. He wanted to make us free and he made us free. Yeah, but but how is he free? I mean, that's that's my problem. Like he exists necessarily as he is and he can't change. So he's kind of, it just seems like he's stuck. Uh, I think this is what they call first world problems. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is this is um, the whole modal logic <laughs> argument. I mean, against divine simplicity, if he is necessary and you know the same in all possible worlds, he can't change. He can't. He can't do anything. There's a hierarchy of truths in every science, and there's a hierarchy of truth in theology. And the goodness of God, his simplicity, his sovereignty, all these attributes. They are the foundation upon which we build an understanding of creation. We don't go the other way around and say, well, if he must be good, therefore he's not free. No. We know first and foremost that he is absolutely free. That's always the first principle. So when people make a really juvenile argument based on some obscure quote in the Old Testament and say, therefore, God is a sadist, you know, you really haven't understood who and what God is. And it's not like the Jews misunderstood. Of course, they strayed, but they didn't misunderstand. They knew fundamentally who and what God was. And so did a lot of the ancient philosophers, right? One one problem I have is um, I'm very influenced by culture. And I look at, you know, modern philosophers and they're all atheists. So like if I were to accept theism or Christianity or any of that, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd look and say, well, how, how do I have it right? But then, you know, the philosophers, these people who are called the smart ones, they don't know it. The problem is not intellectual. It's not that they don't have the intellectual capacity to understand some of these arguments that these saints and philosophers have made over the ages. 
It's not that they don't have the intellectual capacity, it's that they don't have the goodwill that's required. And the reason they don't have the goodwill that's required is that they're in love with their sin. They're in, they're in love with a short-term benefit. They're in love with the short-term immediate pleasures, whether it be some sexual sin or whether it be food or some other pleasures that they know they can drive pleasure from immediately, whereas self-sacrifice, suffering and the cross and these sort of things aren't necessarily as appealing. But if you look at the history of humanity, say the past uh, 4,000 years or whatever, the monotheists far outnumber the atheists. I don't really personally care where the numbers lie in terms of what's everyone doing. I don't really care about that. When we think about the flood, only eight people were saved, right? Mm-hmm. With Noah and the flood. Now, if we think about the miracles and some of the wacky and weird stories in, for example, the Old Testament, where do you stand in terms of your comfort level with the miraculous and all that sort of stuff? I've heard miracle stories from my parents, you know, about experiences they've had. I, ca- I have a hard time denying those because it's, you know, I'll, I'll ask them and then I'll ask someone else and I'll hear this, the exact same story, for example. But again, it, to me, it's just that I feel like it will be or it can be disproven at some point. Let's play a little fantasy game where we fast forward 20 years. Picture yourself 20 years from now accepting on faith things that now you think that you must remain agnostic about. How does that strike you? If I were to accept at least the existence of God and the soul, I'd be fine with anything else. Yeah. Not anything else, but you know you know what I mean? Within reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Within reason. So did you read uh, much St. Augustine or St. Augustine, as I call him? No, I was, I was, I've been recommended Augustine many times by, you know, a lot of people. He's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, for that. There's one thing that maybe I could add about necessitarianism. If necessitarianism is the case, then there is no love, there is no freedom, there is no morality, there is no merit, things just happen. Do you agree with that? If necessitarianism is the case, I wouldn't have a problem with saying they're illusory, I guess. Yeah, when I was a hard determinist, I said they were just illusions. So what is Sam Harris's position, do you know? Oh, yeah, I mean, his yeah, all of those things are illusory. I mean, free will is illusory. He's not great. He's not a, he's not good at all. I, I used to think he was the smartest man on earth. Matt Dillhunty too, all of them, all the you know, the big atheists, they look like garbage now after reading like actual philosophy. <laughs> Have you heard of uh, Daniel Dennett? I've heard of him, I've never read him. Yeah, he's he's like the worst. I mean, he thinks consciousness is an illusion, qualia, you know, color, all these things are all illusions. I feel like that's the way it's going, the the entire materialist you know movement. That's where it's going and it seems to be dying out. There's a new movement called the New Materialist Movement just because of these problems that they're having. Are you pro-life or pro-choice with abortion? Pro-pro-life. Uh, I'll go with pro-life. <laughs> okay. You're not sure? I'm, I'm not sure on anything in the world. Oh, okay. This is your agnosticism, right? Yeah. If you were certain that the god of monotheism is the first cause mm-hmm. and that morality is objective and that humans have free will you would be pro-life yeah yeah definitely i mean yeah is that a fair assessment or no well i mean if i was if i was just a monotheist and i mean not religious then no if i became religious then maybe i would be yeah i would okay because i was a generic monotheist before i became a catholic but as a generic monotheist I was pro-life. And the arguments that I hear from the pro-choice side seem very weak, and they're obviously weak 
because they're obviously based on a self-deception and a rationalization, which is stemming from a very obvious short-term gain, which is a selfish desire to avoid the change in lifestyle that comes with bringing a child into the world, right? So it's very, very, very obvious that these people are intellectually capable of opening a biology 101 textbook and saying, yes, that human zygote is a new human. Everyone knows that. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's the thing. I'm not sure if it's so obvious. I mean, most scientists, I guess, biologists would say it's not a human, right? Wouldn't they? I mean, it's not a human being. No, every scientist agrees it's a human being. But there's this fantasy that's superimposed on top of that. They say, yes, it's a human being, but it's not a person. Personhood comes with the first heartbeat. Personhood comes when it sticks its head out of the womb. So they admit it's a human being because they can't deny the heart science. But they say it's not a person. So this human being is not a person, right? Just like back in the day when black people were not considered persons. They were human beings, but they were not persons. It's the same thing. It's not a question of the intellect. It's not science, right? These people claim to love science, but they want to superimpose a lie on top of the science and say, yeah, it's a human being, but it's just not a person yet. The person, it becomes a person when it can feel pain or when it has first heartbeat or when it sticks its head out of the womb or whatever. Uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I, I mean, personhood is not even a scientific question, I guess then. Yeah. It's just a made up thing. It's just a made up thing to, to justify killing this human being. Yeah. In principle, are you opposed to suicide? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's good. But you haven't got a, a rational basis for that. It's just a gut thing. I guess so. Yeah, a gut thing. Okay. So you do respect your gut and these instincts or whatever you want to call them, even though you don't have a rational argument to back up everything that you feel or every way that you... Well, when it's, when it's like someone's life on the line. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that someone is sick. They're suffering a lot from a disease, which isn't going to kill them. It's just going to make them suffer for the rest of their lives. And they said to you, listen, I think I'm going to kill myself because I can't stand the pain. Tell me honestly, do you think that my pain will end when I die? Yes or no? Well, I mean, technically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, pain would end when you die. Okay. So your advice to him is go ahead and do it because that'll make the pain out. Well, well, no, I mean, I mean, you're asking if pain would end when you die. I mean, that the answer is yes. I mean, it would. And what he wants, his objective is to make the pain stop. And you're confirming that a way that you think is guaranteed to work is for him to kill himself, right? <laughs> it is technically speaking. It is, it is a way. I mean, but so he says to you, I'm in a lot of pain. I want the pain to stop. Will the pain stop when I kill myself? You say yes, but don't do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the right answer. I don't know how else. I mean, well, my answer is no, the pain will just be beginning for you if you kill yourself. This, what you call pain, is like a walk in the park compared to what you have in store for you in hell. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm not sure if hell exists. I, I mean, what, how do I. You're not in a position to tell him what I'm in a position to tell him. Yeah. I have a much more effective deterrent to suicide than you do. Your deterrent is, yeah, everything you want can be accomplished by suicide, but don't do it. Why? I don't know. <laughs> That's not very convincing. My approach is much more convincing. You will go to hell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> do you have rationalistic leanings? Yeah. Yeah. I would say yeah, a lot. I mean, contingency doesn't exist, you know, necessitarianism, all that. That's kind of Spinozan thought. Yeah. I was a big fan of Spinoza for years. Yeah. What'd you think of Hegel? What was it? Absolute idealism. Yeah. I, I, I like um the act and potency. 
analysis of change better than dialect. I told you I read a lot of Marx. Yeah. It, it felt like it was the most practical kind of philosophy. I can see it like in the real world, everything he was talking about, you know, poor and rich and that kind of, you know, I actually have the communist manifesto at home. <laughs> Would you agree that atheism is a central part of that worldview? Of Marxism, yeah. I mean, there's different kinds of Marxism. And, you know, there's different kinds of communism that aren't Marxist. Like there's uh, liberation theology. Have you heard of that? Yeah, it's condemned by the church. It is. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess you don't have to be an atheist to be a communist. You do have to be an atheist to be a Marxist. Yeah. What about Nietzsche? Did you get into him? I haven't read him yet. I mean, I should though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just hope it doesn't like pervert your mind. No, no, I, I mean, I'm, I have, I already know about him. He doesn't have any, you know, real arguments against classical theism. So to me, it, it won't matter, you know, if I, I, I'm not really moved by any, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, did you get into postmodernism at all? No, not, not at all. No. Okay. Yeah, it's a quagmire. I wonder about existentialism, going backwards in time a little bit now to existentialism. What did you read? Did you like anything? I haven't. You haven't explored that? No. Yeah, you're definitely more of the Anglo school rather than the continental school, right? No, I mean, I wouldn't say that anymore. Like I said, I think the ancients are smarter than everyone else combined. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I was talking to, a, you know, to a Catholic friend, you know, and I was I was mentioning the best atheist philosophers, you know, Sobel, Oppie, you know, that's a trend I noticed. You know, it seems to be the Anglos who are. But anyways, you know, I was talking to him and I mentioned how great they are. And he started saying, you know, he read them too. And he's like, you know, any moderately educated Jesuit would destroy them. Like, <laughs> Yeah. What do you think about the Catholic Church and Pope Francis? Can you give me sort of an overview of what impression you have? And uh, I know it's delicate, but if you could talk about the recent sex scandals in the States and Australia and different places, just a rough impression, like the good, the bad, and the ugly with Pope Francis and the Church today. I mean, it's suffering with, you know, modernism is kind of infiltrated. Yeah, I don't, I don't really focus on what's happening in the church. Like, Nothing that's happening in the Catholic Church would change my opinion on it. Like, it's it's all about, you know, if their teachings are true. So, you know, yeah, I'm not sure what to say. About no, that's the perfect answer. That's the most Catholic answer you could give. I, I want to talk about, uh, before we wrap up, this idea of following the truth wherever it leads. It's a very ancient idea in terms of those ancient philosophers. When we think about Socrates and how he was disturbing everyone and annoying everyone just with honest and sincere questions. And maybe some of his questions weren't so honest and weren't so sincere, but they were probing for a reason. He was trying to unsettle people. He was trying to get them to think. And it's the same thing with Jesus. If you think about the way he disturbed people, the way he upset people, and even after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the apostles went around to Athens and different places where there were philosophers and they disturbed them. But there's a danger of being complacent in this world and getting too attached to those shadows on the wall of the cave to the point where you're going to kill anyone that taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, there's a nice sunny day outside. Do you want to leave the cave? So on the one hand, we're confident that we know ourselves. On the other hand, we're very annoyed and aggravated when someone points out a blind spot. There are a lot of defense mechanisms. And uh, speaking of psychology, what did you think of Jordan Peterson when he was all the rage the past couple of years? Uh, well, I have his book, actually, 12 Rules to Life. 
Yeah, I, th- I think he's definitely helped a lot of people. A lot of people. I just think he, again, I don't, <laughs> I when people talk about something, if they're not talking about the philosophy of religion or metaphysics or something I care about, then anything else they say just doesn't really matter to me. I just don't focus on it. But when, he, like, I've heard him talk about religion and stuff. His, his ideas on religion are, are very flawed. Yeah, so, I mean, I think he's good at psychology. But as far as when he talks about religion and stuff, he's just, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Hmm. So I don't know if you know, but at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests to give a little positive message of hope. What might you be able to say to someone uh, that might be listening right now? <laughs> oh, man. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure what I would. Just what's a positive message that you can leave? Just take a stab at it. If it's no good, I'll cut it out. <laughs> man. I'm, not, I'm not even sure what to say really. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I don't know how to approach this at all. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> the floor is yours. You can end with a little, a little thought for the listener. No pressure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know. <laughs> no one has ever refused to do this. Everyone always comes up with something and the way that it usually goes, I'll just pass the floor over to you and you can just talk a little bit about what you're excited about for your own future moving forward. Could you do that? Sure. I mean, I guess, uh, how, I mean, how long do you want me to go? Well, 30 seconds. Sure. I mean, I guess, uh, you can start now and then 30 seconds, I'll stop recording. Go. Hold on. What do I say? Say whatever you want. I, I, I never end the show myself, so you just have to end the show. So just to wrap things up, hit it. <laughs> Take it away, brother. This is the hardest part. Like <laughs> <laughs> Everyone does it, man. Everyone does it. Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, I don't know. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for watching. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll 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 stop torturing you now. Okay. Okay. Oh my gosh. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask.